let's keep worshiping our Lord, our Savior, our ultimate, the Supreme Son, Jesus Christ, by looking into his word. We're in the book of John still, when will be for a really long time. (laughs) We're in chapter 3. And this is actually our third Sunday in chapter 3. The reason why John is so long is because he's narrating a very detailed, intricate, expansive account of Jesus as the Son of God. And in light of that, there is a lot to say. And so we're looking at each part of it carefully, and we continue our study now with John 3, verses 22 to 36. So the study today will be from verse 22 all the way to the end of the chapter. But to get you right to the center, the core of what these verses are all about, I would point you to our initial reading. It's verse 30. i read it twice. It's so short. But it gets to the point. John 3, verse 30. He, that is Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. It was 1492 when Columbus reached the Caribbean. And interestingly, he named the natives there Indians thinking that uh, he had reached what the Europeans at that time referred to as the Indies. The Indies in that mind uh, and that world view consisted of China and Japan and India. But the interesting thing is that, in fact, he was nowhere close to the Indies. (laughs) He wasn't close to the south, nor was he in East Asia. Um, In his path, like between where he was and where he intended to be, were vast tracts of land that he, in fact, interestingly, even to the day of his death, would never even know were there. (laughs) He didn't know that he had discovered a new world. He thought that he had discovered the Indies. His problem was that he assumed the world was smaller than it was. He assumed the world was smaller than it was. I value uh, Dane uh, Ortland's application of this problem to her own view of Jesus Christ as he writes, have we made a similar mistake with regard to Jesus? Are there vast tracts of who he is according to biblical revelation that are unexplored? Have we unintentionally reduced him to manageable, predictable proportions? Have we been looking at a junior varsity, decaffeinated, one-dimensional Jesus of our own making, thinking we're looking at the real Jesus? Have we snorkeled in the shallows, thinking we've now hit the bottom on the Pacific? I would add, when it comes to Christ, have we eyed the hills of Ocala, Florida, thinking that we've basically seen the summit of Everest? (laughs) Friends, 
most of us have no idea how big, deep, huge, heavy the Son of God actually is. And in the case of some who may be here today, such cluelessness may actually be the difference between eternal life and eternal death. You'll see that. There could be some even here visiting this Sunday or maybe having attended for weeks now who think that Jesus is a good guy. He's an enlightened teacher. He is a prophet. Uh, He is a religious authority of some kind. Uh, He is definitely one way to God among many. And the text will actually reveal if you have such an inferior, such a small view of Jesus you will perish eternally. For those of you who are family in Christ, you, you, you do know that Christ is not just one among many, but He is the only one. He is the way, the truth, the life. You know He's the Lord, the Savior, the Christ, the Son of God. But we struggle with something a little different. That, it's such a huge thought. It's such a weighty concept that sometimes our, our, our minds just go into like autopilot and we just kind of get used to the way that things are and we fail to see the, the largeness of who Christ is and its practical implications for our life. At times, The fact that Jesus as the Son is the ultimate, that He is supreme, bears little practicality in our lives, and we need a fresh reminder in case things have gotten off track. We just, we we flow with a current, and it just naturally shapes us, and every once in a while, we just need to be redirected. We need to be reminded. He's not just the Lord. He's not just the Son of God. There there is no such thing as mere universal lordship. (laughs) There is no such thing as someone merely being the Son of God. This is huge. I think symptoms that this has happened to you is maybe you would step into a Sunday morning, even like now, and you're kind of sing without energy. It's like, well, last week was a big week. That was Easter. We just need to get through this one because it's the week after. You know, the, the inevitable, what comes up must come down. <laughs> We're just going to do our church thing this morning. We're going to sing our little songs. Uh, We're going to read uh, the Word of God. But we may have not even remembered what was read even 10 minutes ago. Uh, Maybe uh, a symptom of this is just praying without passion. In the five minutes that uh, Mitch was leading us in prayer, you could just kind of ask yourself, how much of that time were you actually engaged in prayer as opposed to just letting the brother speak. It, it happens and can be seen in just the, the way that we live on Monday through Saturday compared to Sunday. Now, look, this isn't me just trying to like press down on guilt to start off. What I'm saying is that these things are inevitable. They happen in my own heart and soul. And I think that in part they happen that way because we forget how big Christ really is. So I'm not coming to give guilt this morning. I'm coming to give grace. I want to stun you. John wants to stun you with a reminder of the supremacy of Christ. 
This is encouraging. This is good. The beloved, that's what I'm going to call him, by the way. Let me define my terms. I have to do this from time to time whenever we're referring to a passage that has both John the Baptist in it and I'm referring to John the author. So because uh, John, the author, refers to himself in this book as the disciple whom Jesus loved, I prefer to call him, in these cases, John the Beloved. John the Baptist is that other guy. (laughs) So that being said, terms defined, I want you to know that John the Beloved repeatedly throughout the book stuns us with the supremacy of the Son. He's done it already through, from chapter 1 to chapter 3. Remember that, that opening bomb you know, that he gave, that, that epilogue, this theological description of who Christ is? I mean, he just states straight up, all right, this is who the Son of God is. He is actually God. He entered into the human realm. And this is the difference between life and death. But then he gives us several examples, like worked out in real life, about how much bigger Jesus is than anyone or anything else. Maybe you will remember up to this point uh, that Jesus uh, is shown to be superior to uh, the religious ritualism and uh, purification rites of the Pharisees in the wedding at Cana, right? He took those pots that were supposed to be used for purification, and he actually made wine, which was the symbol of eschatological end-time joy. He was showing that he was superior to Judaism in that. And what does he do in the next story? He shows that he is superior to the temple itself. I mean, the temple in the Jewish mind, you remember, was like a mix between um, the Vatican and the White House all in one. It was supposed to be this highly religious place. And Jesus says, I'm shutting this thing down. The new temple will be me. He is showing himself to be better even than the temple, better than any aspect of religious Judaism. Then you get to chapter 3, he's talking with another rabbi, and they get in a debate, and the guy's like, I want to enjoy eternal life, and Jesus says, okay, if you want to enjoy eternal life, I want you to know it's not going to come through your purity, which was the pharisaical mindset of the day. It's going to actually come through this new birth, uh, the water and the Spirit. I will provide that. And then he shows himself to be superior in the follow-up to that conversation. Remember when he gives that analogy about the brazen serpent being lifted up in the wilderness? That was a means of real salvation for people who were under the curse of sin. And Jesus says, I'm actually going to fulfill that. That is just a shadow of the substance. I am better than this. So do you see how he's saying that he's superior to everything that was being offered in that day? And in this particular passage... He's going to show it again. But this time, John the Beloved is going to capitalize upon a controversy to show that Jesus is even superior to the greatest prophet in all of the Scripture other than Jesus himself, John the Baptist. Now, the controversy is kind of fun to follow. For those of you who like debate, you like drama, you've got it all here. It it starts off with this conflict in uh, this competition, if you will. Look at verses 22 and 23. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples, that was after the events of the conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, get the picture. John's painting a picture here. He's setting up a conflict. This is what you know. Team Jesus has struck out from Jerusalem. They're in the Judean countryside, and they are baptizing. Now, to be clear, just a note, Jesus is not baptizing. John chapter 4, verse 2 will make this clear. 
But when it says that Jesus is baptizing, it's talking about, again, team Jesus, his disciples, they're baptizing. And it sounds like they're doing the same thing John was doing, right? We would assume at this point that they're preaching that the kingdom of God is about to be established and set up, and you need to repudiate your old life as evidence through this ritual that you were dirty and you were unclean, and you need to be clean before God, and you're trusting that he will be the one to clean you. So Jesus sets up a ministry similar to John the Baptist. If we were thinking about business markets, he sets up a similar business not far down the road from where John had set up his business. I mean, we're talking like Walgreens and CVS being on the same corner. Now, they ain't selling anything. They're giving it away. But they are doing the exact same thing. Notice the next verse, verse 24. You heard from Jesus. Now, listen to what's going on with John the Baptist. Excuse me, verse 23. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized. So John has set up a fruitful industry as well, right? They're doing the same thing. And by the way, for those of you who would ever be curious, the word baptize means to immerse in water. The reason why that's even more clear than just what the lexicon would divulge is that John goes to baptize in this particular place because the water is deep. There's a lot of water there. Now, I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm just saying that if baptism was just merely sprinkling someone, he wouldn't need a lot of water. Just ecclesiological point, but not the main point of the message. That being said, verse 24, he's doing the same thing. and, And then we have this, John had not yet been put into prison. That's kind of a weird comment for some of us. But for those of you who are historical buffs and you you'd like to see how the Gospels fit together, all John is doing here is he's trying to say that the events of this overlapping ministry of John and Jesus actually took place before John was thrown into prison. The reason why that matters is because the synoptic Gospels all portray Jesus' ministry as starting after John was thrown into prison. It's like you read the book of Mark, for example, and the first thing you see is John's thrown into prison. John is letting us know... I'm aware of the synoptic gospels. I'm aware of the other things that are there. I'm just letting you know, because you didn't know, that there was a time before John was thrown into prison that he and Jesus were ministering at the same time. All that being said, the main point of these two is Jesus has set up shop preaching the kingdom and baptizing. John has set up shop preaching and baptizing. And now John's followers, his disciples, his apprentices, his interns, if you will, are going to get involved in this thing, and they're going to stir up a little bit of a debate. It starts off, the debate does, with uh, this uh, one particular adherent of Judaism. Look in verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. All right, so you would naturally expect, because, I mean, after all, John's team, John's disciples were basically like poking the popular Judaistic religion in the eye by saying, hey, you don't get right with God by going through all these religious rituals. You're going to do this by repenting and being baptized. So this Jew, this adherent of Judaism, gets in a debate with John the Baptist's disciples over purification. And we don't know exactly how the conversation goes down. But it seems that something happened similar to this. They're talking about purification. They're talking about how to be clean before God. 
This particular Jew would naturally say, well, we're going to be clean before God by doing all the religious rituals that were prescribed to us in the Torah, and also these extra ones that have been added in recent decades. Uh, John the Baptist's disciples are probably debating back, no, those things are empty, those things can't save you. What will really save you is what we're offering here at Team John the Baptist, and that is this repentance from sin toward God expressed in baptism. And then I can only imagine, this is the best way I can put this story together. The Jewish guy says, hey, you made it sound like you're the only one offering this, but there's actually someone else doing this. There's another brand out there offering a similar product. His name's Jesus. You ever heard of him? He's doing something similar down the road. Well, naturally, those on Team John the Baptist get a little concerned because they thought that they had a corner on the market. They thought that they had something unique. And so what they do is they immediately go to their leader and say, you won't believe this. That guy, you're going to see this in the text in a moment, but just hang with me for a second. That guy that you baptized across the Jordan, they don't even say his name, they just say that guy. He's baptizing people, and this Jewish guy's telling us that everybody's coming to him. We've got a problem. This guy's becoming more popular than we are. Now, if you think I overstated that, look at the text. Verse 26, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, you're the one that authenticated him. You're the one that pointed him out. Look, notice, wake up to the fact he is baptizing and all are going to him. You see the controversy? And with that, we've been set up. We are officially set up. What we have here is in this moment, John the Beloved uses this, John the Baptist's response to this event, plus some additional commentary of his own to affirm Jesus' supremacy. That's how the rest of this text is going to unfold. Through the lens of that controversy, John the Beloved is going to use the testimony of John the Baptist, plus some of his own additional comments to show That this is exactly what should happen. Jesus should be viewed as supreme, as superior. In fact, this perceived dilemma is simply a springboard to the beloved's highest concern for the original readers. Listen to this. His highest concern for all of us who would listen to this story today. And that is the supremacy of the Son. That's what this text is about. The supremacy of the Son. By the way, I use the term supreme and not superior. Superior means just better than something else. Supreme means the highest, the best. This text is showing that Jesus is the highest. He is the best. He is the ultimate. And it's going to do so in a way that I think is easy for us all to follow. John's going to establish the Son's supremacy through two pictures. Two word pictures. Uh, The first picture is from the lips of John the Baptist, and that is the groom at his wedding. A groom at his wedding. The second picture is from the pen of John the Beloved, and that is the picture of the ambassador from above. 
the groom at his wedding and the ambassador from above. If you get these pictures, it should help you cling to the supremacy of Christ all the more clearly and compellingly. Now, let's look at this first picture. Uh, Jesus, in verses 27 to 30, is portrayed as the ultimate groom. That's, a, that's another way you could say it. The ultimate groom. He, he's a groom at his wedding, but he's not just any groom. He's the ultimate groom. Notice how John answers his concerned disciples in verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Now, pause. John is going to give an explanation, but I, I want to ask you a question. I was about to read all this, and I'm like, no, 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 no. I want to help you read your own Bible. Here, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to look at your text and get an answer. Okay, here's the question. How does John the Baptist feel about this concern regarding Jesus' rising prominence and popularity? How does he feel about that? Is he threatened? Is he frustrated? Is he guarded? Read it again. And how would you describe John's response to this news of Jesus' rising prominence? I'll give you five seconds or so to skim over it. Here are some words that come to mind as I reflected on John the Baptist's response. Humble, relieved, delighted, and determined. In light of the fact that Jesus is the ultimate groom, he's actually, John the Baptist is humbled, relieved, delighted, and determined. Notice his humility in verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Now, this is pretty obvious. By the way, if you're not familiar with the term from heaven, it's just a way that Jewish people would often speak about God. They didn't like to use his name more than they had to, and so they would talk about things coming from heaven. Basically, we could say it this way. A person cannot receive one thing unless it's given him from God. All stations and circumstances of life are ultimately from God. This is what John thinks. He's not concerned about him not being as popular anymore because he realizes that even popularity is something that is given from God. Now, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says something similar. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now, friends, uh, just apply this to yourself for a moment, especially if you've ever felt, you know, that, that envy that kind of swells up within us from time to time. Uh, John's saying, hey, guys, the solution here is to realize that anything that we've ever gotten has come from God himself. This is a basic fact of life. I love the way that uh, those old Puritans put it in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 10. You remember these lines. They're beautiful It's the fact that God is uh, a God of providence. He oversees all things. And this is what they said. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby as with his hand he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Everything 
comes by his fatherly hand. To this, I would add, popularity or obscurity comes by his fatherly hand. Status or anonymity comes at his fatherly hand. You get that, right? John, he's not concerned. He's humble. He's just, he knows it all comes from God anyway. He had his time in the spotlight, if you will, of Judaism, and now he doesn't, and that's okay. And so for John the Baptist, naturally, this included the privilege of playing any part in preparing people for the coming kingdom of God. Great. I'm glad I was able to play a part. Any success or fruit is ultimately up to God, not to man. Uh, Just practical church time out for a second, friends. If you're in Christ, if you're visiting, just tune out for a second. But if you're in Christ and you're in church, I want you to know that one of the places in which envy can be alive and well is when people are ministering together with one another. And then all of a sudden, literally somebody gets under the multicolored spotlights that just appeared out of nowhere this week. And they're like, well, why did that person get to be on stage and I didn't get to be on stage? Why does their small group have so many people and my small group doesn't have so many people? Why does so-and-so get their name in the bulletin and I didn't get my name in the bulletin? Uh, Friends, can we not just chalk it up to the providential hand of God? Sometimes he puts people in the spotlight. Sometimes he puts them in the background. But it's all part of his sovereign hand. This is the lesson that John the Baptist is teaching his followers. It's okay. It's okay. He is humble. But he's not only humbled, notice, in light of the fact that he understands that Jesus is the ultimate groom, he's also relieved. He's relieved. Look at verse 28. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Now, John is reminding his disciples, like, hey, guys, remember my message? Remember the whole reason God put me in this role in the first place? I've been saying from day one, you've heard me say it, you could testify to it, I'm not the Christ. I'm the one who goes before the Christ. I am the one who prepares people for the coming of the Christ. He's like, we should be relieved. We should be re- this is exactly what we came to do. It's as if he reminds them that the point of his ministry all along was not to be the hero, but the sidekick. Not the star, but the stagehand. Not the quarterback, but the lineman. And so in light of that, now with Jesus' rising prominence, the fact that his popularity is beginning to gain momentum, they could be relieved that the hero was on the scene, the star was on the stage, the quarterback was in the pocket with his hands firmly on the ball. They'd succeeded. This was success. This is exactly what they should have wanted to accomplish in the first place. They are relieved. They should be relieved. Friends, we can never be upset that people are coming to Jesus. That's an expression of someone who buys into the supremacy of the Son. They're just happy that Jesus is getting the credit no matter who is involved in it. One put it this way with additional analogies. I love word pictures, so I'll give you some more. He says, it's like a corporate headhunter upset that his clients are landing jobs, or a baker that his bread keeps on getting eaten, or a builder upset that people buy homes he builds, or a painter that his paintings are being purchased. Foolish, yes. Why? Because that is the aim of their occupation. Friends, this was the aim of his occupation, was to point people to Jesus in the first place. So they're relieved. He says, we should be relieved because he's the star, he's the hero. He's the quarterback. 
Paul modeled this so well. Do you remember? And um, it was uh, Philippians chapter 1. He's, he's in prison, and he's got people who are preaching Jesus. And like, I don't know how this could happen. I can only imagine it, but I assume it happens. People are literally preaching Jesus just to spite Paul. Not because they want people to be saved. They're doing it because, like, it's been a pretty popular message. It's having a huge impact. And they're like, ha, oh, you can't do it, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to preach Jesus. And you know what he's saying? Great! Awesome! Jesus is being preached. This is the whole point. He's humble. He's relieved. He's delighted. Verse 29. Man. I thought, you know, whatever paltry analogies I would give pale in comparison to the one that John focuses on in this verse. This is where we get to the point. Notice his delight, verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. You get the analogy. He's talking to what we refer to in our own day as the best man at a wedding. Now, the best man at a wedding today actually has very little responsibility in comparison to the best man of a Jewish wedding, especially in the first century. One of the guys that has done the most homework ever on like Jewish background and the way things were in that particular time is a man by the name of William Barclay. Uh, he writes specifically of the responsibility of the best man in this particular time, space, and culture. And just listen to his comments. You're, you're going to see that this is a, a pretty heavy, hefty responsibility. The Shoshben, that's what it's called in the Hebrew, had a unique place at a Jewish wedding. He acted as the liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. So they weren't supposed to talk to one another before their wedding, so he was the go-between. He arranged the wedding. Ladies, imagine that, the dude arranging the wedding. (laughs) He took out the invitations. He presided at the wedding feast. And he brought the bride and groom together. And he had one special duty. It was his duty to actually guard the bridal chamber on the night of their honeymoon, if you will, before they consummated the relationship, to let no false lover in. I think one of the things that is easy for you to forget is that in the first century, there is no electricity. It's dark at night. And so he would uh, protect the bridal chamber until he heard the voice of the groom and then would let him in. And once they were safely together, he would go on his way. John says, I'm not the groom. I'm just the best man. As long as I get to hear that Jesus has entered into this special relationship with his chosen people, I can get out of the way. Friends, even if you have been the best man in a wedding before and didn't bear that same level of responsibility, you know what it's like to stand on that stage and let your friend actually get the honor of what's going on in that moment. That is his bride. You overhear them saying those sweet nothings to one another as music is playing, as vows are being exchanged. And if you are a true friend, you are just delighted that he is in the spotlight and that they are having their day. 
And so what John recognizes is over the course of universal history, Jesus is the divine groom who is marrying a bride. Now, we understand, those of us who grew up in church, that the church is called the bride of Christ. They are His special beloved. But friends, I want you to know that from the very beginning, you start reading through the Old Testament prophets, especially, and God had regularly prophesied that He would have this kind of close, special relationship with His people from day one. And here John is like, we're finally getting to that moment where God's Son is going to enter into this special relationship with His people, and as long as they are together, I am good. We can let this thing go. It doesn't matter if I'm in the spotlight. It's not my wedding day. And friends, we need to be reminded, it it is not about us. It is about Him who has redeemed us, Him who has provided salvation for us, He who has consummated our joy through His death and burial and resurrection. It's all about Him. And so, John is delighted. It says, I am not just happy, but notice this. He says, this joy of mine is now complete. Let me give you some other translations. These are the Justin Harris translation. Uh, Crammed full, stuffed, topped off. It's not just, I'm kind of happy. It's like, it's to the max. Because he's not the groom. He's the best man. But notice this, he's not only delighted, here's the last one, he's determined. Verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. He uses an imperative. Actually, it's a present active imperative, which you could translate it this way. He must keep increasing, I must keep decreasing. The terms increase and decrease strike us as rather mathematic, but the way that they're actually used most often in the first century literature of that day uh, was that of the sun increasing in the morning while the stars would diminish with the sun's rising. You know the picture, right? You see the beautiful stars in the night sky, and uh, they're, they're small, and they're bright, and they're helpful, especially if the moon is shining. But the sun comes, it increases, and as it increases, those stars cannot complete. They diminish. John is saying, let the sun, S-O-N, rise in the hearts of his people, and let the smaller lights diminish. It must happen this way. I am determined that he will be greater and that I will be lesser because he's the groom. I am not. There can be no shared crown in the popularity contest with Jesus. Jesus did not come to make you more prominent and popular. He came to get the glory for himself. And so that's why I say that this text enthralls us with the supremacy of the Son. It reminds us that that He is the bridegroom at the center of history. He is the one who has come to redeem for Himself a bride, a, a people, if you will. You remember that passage, and this isn't just for husbands. I'd have us all listen to it from Ephesians 5, where He explains the significance of the marriage metaphor. And He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
Friends, let me apply this very quickly and we will move on. Jesus did not come to make you the best man. It would be easy to read this thing and think, oh, well, I'm the best man. You're not the best man. John the Baptist was the best man. You know who you are? You're the bride of Christ. You're the one that he came to redeem. And the whole point of all those prophets up to history was to point to this one. And sure, we want Jesus to have the supremacy because we know that he is indeed the groom. Not just because we are somehow the best man. We are the beloved. And friends, we are the beloved who is we who believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Not as one among the many, not as one of the guys that's kind of up there, but the Son of God. The one who died to satisfy God's wrath. The one who rose again for our justification. If you're believing in Jesus in that way, you are His beloved. (laughs) And He is the ultimate groom at the center of eternity. And that should stun us into a new level of commitment and joy. Let me just ask, just diagnostic questions. Is that the craving of your heart this morning? Is that the cry of your soul in personal prayer? I mean, do you pray to Jesus as some abstract entity or as the beloved, as the bridegroom, as the one who has redeemed you with his own blood? Friends, don't be distraught. I want you to understand, I've tried to hit this several times, but for those of you who aren't feeling at 100% all the time, it is okay. I'm not asking if you always feel that he is the supreme one, the superior groom. I'm asking if you believe that that's the case. Do you see him as the ultimate, as the old hymn writer Charles Wesley put it, lover of your soul? That should be what you are by faith constantly pursuing, relating to him in that way as the beloved, as the ultimate. There's a huge difference, those of you who have been married a while can attest, to being married and feeling like you're on your honeymoon. Don't say amen, please, for your sake. I love the way John Piper put it in his book, This Momentary Marriage. He, he talks to, he's very transparent in the opening about his own relationship with his wife, Noel. And he says, you know what? Marriage is like a pendulum swing. He says, sometimes we're at the heights of ecstasy. Sometimes we're at the heights of hating one another, it seems. But it's constantly going back and forth. But we're always anchored and committed. But friends, I, don't, I can't give a one-to-one analogy between a marriage relationship and your relationship with Jesus, but I can say that there are times where you feel more in love with Jesus, and there are other times when you are by faith in love with Jesus, but either way, you're connected to Him as the source. You view Him as your bridegroom. That's why He came. He's the ultimate. He is the supreme. There is no other. So, John the Baptist stuns us with the supremacy of the Son by depicting Him as a groom at His wedding. And to this, he adds another picture. This is from John the Beloved. And here, he will portray Him as an ambassador from above. I missaid that. I should have said it this way. The ambassador from above. The heavenly ambassador, verses 31 to 36. Now, um, this, this, these few verses, friends, are rather dense. 
They are, they are theologically dense. I'm not going to read them all at one time. I'm going to read them just a, a few verses at a time. If, if you're uh, the kind of person that likes to take a lot of notes, I, basically verses 31 and 32 are about the ambassador's origin, all right? John wants you, first of all, to see where this Jesus comes from, and then on that he will build on the ambassador's effect, like what is it that he actually does. So origin and effect, origin and effect. That being the case, let's just view it that way. All right, his origin, where, where is he from? Because if you know where he's from, you're going to know what he can accomplish. All right, his, uh, his origin is very clear. He repeats it over and over again in verse 31. He is a heavenly ambassador. Look, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. All right, so verses 31 and 32 make it pretty clear. All right. This is one who is from above. He is from a different realm than you. He is not just one among the many. He is not another religious figure. John the Baptist was earthly. He was from the earth, different realm of existence. This one is from above. And even he likes it so much, he says it twice, right? He says again, he who is from above is above all. Now, this makes total sense. Basically, what he wants you to understand, a good good adage here, it's often attributed to J.C. Ryle. I think I've heard somebody else say it. But the best of men are men at best. We're, we don't need to view Jesus as just some really great guy. Because the best of men are men at best. Now quoting Ryle. Patriarch, patriarchs, prophets, and apostles, martyrs, fathers, reformers, Puritans, they're all sinners who need a Savior. Holy, useful, honorable in their place, but sinners after all. John's saying is, look, he's not one of those guys. He's from a different realm. He's from a different origin. An analogy, he's not just a local dock worker, if you will. He comes from the corporate office. (laughs) Now, as Americans, even an analogy like that fails miserably because we are so determined, sorry to critique our own culture for a second, but we are so determined to tell rags to riches stories. Like, the very essence of being American is like, there's no superior person to me. We do what we want to do. Ah, monarchy. All right, so I understand that. But you need to understand the way that the world has worked for at least 6,000 years. It's, it's even hard to say. I didn't even realize this. In this cultural moment, this is hard to say, but let me just tell you the truth of how it is. There are people in the way that God has set things up to be in positions of authority over other people. It is part of his good and gracious plan to the degree that the one who would rule Israel would not be voted in, but he would be born in. In fact, they took that so seriously that when it came time for them to be able to like set up their own like form of government uh, beyond the first century period, they still held on to this idea, at least in Great Britain, called the divine right of kings. Do you know what that meant? The person who would be the king was the person who was born into it, not the person who became it. Like, he can't be voted in, he he must be born in. And so again, for thousands of years of history, people have understood 
there is an ontologically superior status of some to rule over others. And this is the analogy, by the way, that John is using here. He's saying, look, the one who's from above, the one who has the divine blood, if you will, flowing through him, he's the one that gets to come in and have the right to tell anybody else who's from below what to do. The king's son gets to rule, whether you like him or not. And what he's saying is, this is the king's son. He is the one from above. He was sent from above like an ambassador, like an emissary. He fully represents the father. And because of that, he has the authority to tell you whatever the father jolly well pleases. Like this is such a big deal that there's this story that, that Jesus tells in, in the book of Matthew. And I'm just, so I don't get lost in the weeds, I'm actually going to read for you this story because it pictures it perfectly. It's from Jesus' own lips, but I'm going to use a paraphrase, so don't stone me. But I like the paraphrase, so I want to do it because I think it it gets to the narrative. It's called the the story of the wicked tenants, but I want you to understand the role of the ambassador in this story. This is uh, Eugene Peterson. Here's another story. Listen closely. There was once a man, a wealthy farmer, who planted a vineyard. He fenced it, dug a wine press, put up a watchtower, then turned it over to his farmhands and went off on a trip. When it was time to harvest the grapes, he sent his servants back to collect his profits. The farmhands grabbed the first servant and beat him up. The next one, they murdered. They threw stones at the third, but he got away. And the owner tried again, sending more servants, and they got the same treatment. The owner was at the end of his rope. He decided to send his son. Surely, he thought, they will respect my son. But when the farmhands saw the son arrive, they rubbed their hands in greed. This is the heir. Let's kill him and have it all for ourselves. They grabbed him, threw him out, and killed him. Now, When the owner of the vineyard arrives home from his trip, what do you think he will do to the farmhands? This is Jesus' conclusion. He'll kill them. A rotten bunch of and good riddance, they answered. Then he'll assign the vineyard to farmhands who will hand over the prophets when it's time. And Jesus said, right, and you can read it for yourselves in your Bibles. The stone the masons threw out is now the cornerstone. This is God's work. We rub our eyes and we can hardly believe it. And then here's Jesus' conclusion. This is the way it is with you. God's kingdom will be taken from you and handed over to a people who will live out a kingdom life. Whoever stumbles on this stone gets shattered and whoever the stone falls on gets smashed. You see what's going on here? The one who was sent, the emissary, the ambassador, the way they treated him was like the way they would treat the father. He was from above. He had the right to tell them whatever they wanted to do. And guess what? They would reject it. In fact, that's why John says in verse... I know that's awkward. Give me a second. 
Verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. John is already recognizing that this was the one who was from above, and guess what? People are already rejecting him. And who in the world are they rejecting? Listen to what this one can do. We've looked at his origin. Now look at his accomplishment. Verse 33, whoever receives his testimony, talking about Jesus, sets his seal to this, that God is true. This ambassador is so authoritatively verified that to agree with him is to agree with God. The sets his seal is the idea of someone with a signet ring, like pressing it into wax, saying, I agree with that. You know, anytime that like you sign a receipt or something, you're saying, I agree with the charges here. Basically, I think back to those old school days when I used to actually sell furniture and we used to do credit card receipts with this like triplicate kind of print thing. And somebody would sign their name on the top form, and that was going to the company. But by signing their name on the top form, they were affirming it in three different directions at the same time. They were saying that this is true for me, this is true for the company, and this is true for the creditor. And those things would get split up and sent out. They were saying, to sign your name on Jesus, to say that you agree with what he says about heaven, life, eternity, who he is, is to also at the same time to agree with God himself, to say he is true. This isn't just some really neat religious guy. This is someone who represents God himself. On top of that, look at the next thing. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now, this one is the one who uniquely possesses the Spirit. Uh, The prophets in the Old Testament possess these these portions of the Spirit, if you will. That's why uh, David in Psalm 51 prays after he sins, take not your Holy Spirit from me. He realized it was like a, a limited commodity. But here, this is the fountainhead of the Spirit. This is the one who will actually, according to John chapter 1, give the Spirit to all who come to him. Access to the Holy Spirit, the one who actually enables Like these miraculous feats in the Old Testament is going to be the one who will then indwell all who come to Jesus. This is huge. I mean, this is an ambassador from above, the ambassador from above. He possesses the Spirit without measure. Look at verse 35. He's the beloved of the Father. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. In fact, listen to this. The Father loves the Son so much, and He has so entrusted the Son with everything that He has that to heed the Son and believe in the Son equals eternal life, and to disobey the Son equals eternal wrath of God. Remember that parable again. What will happen to those workers who killed the Son, who rejected the Son? They would be eliminated. John gets back to the point that he makes over and over and over again. Look at it in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And this is, friends, I, look, look in your Bible, please, because I've got I to have you see this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That doesn't surprise anybody in the room, does it? You're, you're expecting that? Okay, now... What you would then expect to hear next is whoever doesn't believe in the Son has eternal death. But look and see what the text says. 
Note the comparison. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Belief is contrasted with obedience. This is, this is heavy. This is huge. This is getting back to the stuff that I've been trying to explain to you for three weeks now. There is no such thing as intellectual-only effectual belief. To believe that Jesus is the crucified Lord is to behave in a certain way. You're saying that he's the boss, that he's the manager, that he's the owner, that he's the ruler, that he's the redeemer, that, that he has actually purchased you. It doesn't even make any sense that you would believe in Jesus and not obey him. And so John gives us a contrast. To believe in Jesus, that is to have life eternal, to enjoy it right now. But to disobey Jesus, to not give a rip about what he says, is to remain under the wrath of God. And friends, again, note the contrast, just paying attention to the word here, eternal life is contrasted with remaining under God's wrath. For anyone who would somehow take some kind of solace that you're going to exist in this temporary place and you're going to be purged from your infirmities and then you're going to be released back into heaven or maybe somehow you're going to suffer in hell for a limited amount of time and then cease to exist, that is not in the pages of Scripture. Eternal life is contrasted with eternal wrath. You will remain under His wrath. And I get it, I know that people don't like to hear about the wrath of God and it sounds like something icky to some because you've seen wrath poured out in such sinful ways. But I want to be really clear. God's wrath, let me define it for you just using some of the words of others smarter than me. God's wrath is the settled and active opposition of His holy nature to everything that is evil including those who reject the Son. Another, God's holy outrage against rebellious humanity. It is a holy outrage. He's not just like lost it. He hates rebellion because rebellion is not right. And so we see here that that the Son is supreme, not only as the groom, but also as the ambassador. You know what you see in this? This is, it's amazing how this keeps happening. You see the height and extremity of God's love shown in His Son, this groom who comes to die for His bride. But at the same time, you see the height and extremity of God's authority in His Son. He's this ambassador who's coming to rule and reign. Any who reject Him will suffer eternal wrath. C.S. Lewis commented on this in a letter that he wrote back in 1959. (laughs) The reason I quote him so much is because he's got some things bad way wrong on a lot of stuff. But on some of the essentials, he could just capture the imagination. This is just the guy writing in a stinking letter, and it just sums up so well these two extremes that we see here. Now, I'm not going to give you the whole context, but I'm just going to jump in Whoever it is he's writing to, he says, Gentle Jesus, my elbow. The most striking thing about our Lord is the union of great ferocity 
with extreme tenderness. And he says to the guy, do you remember Pascal? He's talking about Blaise Pascal. Pascal said, I do not admire the extreme of one virtue unless you show me at the same time the extreme of the opposite virtue. One shows one's greatness not by being at an extremity, but by being simultaneously at two extremities and filling the space between. Time out on the letter. If he's all love and no authority, there's not much to admire there. He can't get anything done. He can't keep stuff under control. If he's all authority and he's no love, who wants a piece of that? Who wants to belong to someone who doesn't care for you but has all the... That's, that's crazy. That's destructive. Pascal said, true greatness is somebody who can fill up the extremes on both and everything in between. And so, Lewis continues, add to this that he is also a supreme ironist, a dialectician, and occasionally humorous, talking about Jesus. So, go on. You're on the right track now, getting to the real man behind all the plaster dolls that have substituted for him. This is the appearance in human form of the God who made the tiger and the lamb. The avalanche and the rose, he'll frighten and puzzle you, but the real Christ can be loved and admired as the doll cannot. Friends, what John has shown us here is the real Christ, not the doll of your own imagination. He is the highest in authority, and he is the highest in love, and that demands our supreme allegiance. Friends, I have prayed for you in this moment, even today, that you would be stunned afresh by the supremacy of the Son. I think if it's true of you, if you were truly stunned by His supremacy, you would be able to step out into this week with a couple of swing thoughts. Let me give you these and then we're done. One, for you non-golfers in the room, a swing thought is <laughs> the thing that you think when you swing. <laughs> Golf is such a psychologically complex sport that you have to somehow like calm it down in here to produce a good shot. So they say just one thought. You need one thought while you're swinging. So I want to give you one of two potential swing thoughts for the week. For those of you that aren't golfers, you could call these sticky note thoughts. You could take this, you could literally put it on a sticky note. You could put it on your mirror, and this could serve you with great effect this week. If indeed you want to be stunned by the supremacy of the sun. Here's the first thing I would write on a sticky note, or that I would use as a swing thought for the week. This ain't my party. Phrase number one, this ain't my party. And write ain't, it's much superior to the others. This ain't my party. Friends, I don't care if it's in your home or whatever goes on in this church or whatever goes on in your workplace or whatever's going on in the broader world. This ain't my party. Jesus is orchestrating all things for his perfect glory one day, and it may not fall out the way that you want it. It may not happen the way that you wish, and yet he is in control. It's all about him. The history is flowing his direction. He is doing this all for the goodness and greatness of His name. 
So in this, you could be, if it ain't your party, you can be asking in whatever you're facing or whatever you're stepping into or whatever you're endeavoring, how can I enjoy him? How can I exalt him? He's the groom. He, it's him. It's his day. I want him to be honored. I want him to be happy. Not how can I be happy? How can I get what I want? This ain't my party. Got it? Second, different sticky note, different swing thought. Maybe try them out on different days. I would write it this way, you're the boss. You know what? If it's on your mirror, let's change that. He's the boss. If you put you're the boss on the mirror, you might be thinking like, all right, I'm in charge. (laughs) Swing thoughts are complicated. He's the boss. Friends, he's the boss. We got to be up to what he's up to. We don't plan our lives. He has planned it for us. Have you ever read the Great Commission in its context? I'm not going to read it right now. Matthew 28. Go check it out for yourself one more time at some point this afternoon. I want you to notice when Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, how many times he couches it in his authority. He says, guys, I've left you here for a reason, and that is to be making disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Frankly, friends, that is a, a corporate command, not just a personal one. I don't want you to feel like, you know, here today that, all right, you've got to go start your own personal evangelistic ministry. That will happen as you go. That will be the case. But I want you to know that you are already part of something that is doing this. And he's just saying, stay committed to that which has been entrusted to you. Continue to proclaim the lordship of Christ to the nations, both starting here and then throughout the world. He's the boss. And you know what? That impacts not just what you do at this church, but also impacts what you do in your home. He's the boss there. He's seeking to make disciples there. Guess what? He's the boss at work. He's actually seeking for you to make disciples there. He's the boss in your community. You get it? Like, this is his thing. He's in charge. He's got the authority. So we're committed to his mission, his message. And so the Son relates to us and rules over us as supreme. So let us now resolve to, by God's help, give Him all the glory. He is the supreme Son of God. And we'll do so with a closing exclamation of praise. Musicians, if you'll make your way forward, this will be our closing prayer of praise. It's an exclamation from the heart that covers all life circumstances. And here's the simple prayer, all glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ in my home. All glory be to Christ in this church. All glory be to Christ in my community. That is our closing prayer for those of us who are in him. And if you're not, if you have yet to bow the knee to him as supreme, please talk to me or whoever invited you on the way out so that you can know the joy of being submitted to the Supreme Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.